lying, deceiving, straight out, just uh, uh, sinfully taking his brother's blessing. So he, he, wasn't, he wasn't very kind when he took the birthright. Uh, you know, your brother's hungry, let's sell him some food, you know. Uh, not the way families... How, how many of your families charge a cover fee for Thanksgiving? Right? Probably not the way to go. <laughs> Probably not the way to go. Although if your family's big enough, you might need to do that. So I should give, I should give some of our families a pass for that. At, at least bringing something and contributing to the pot would be nice, right? Um, anyway, uh, uh, so he's, he's just kind of ungracious in the way he barters for Esau's birthright, but he's outright sinful in the way he steals Esau's blessing. And the results of these actions of, uh, of Jacob's are revealed to us in, uh, in Genesis 27. So I want to read uh, this morning Genesis 27, verses 41 through 46. Uh, this is, this is going to be just a, a, a quick few points. And, um, uh, and then I want to look at, uh, at Jacob being sent away. And we're going to look at, at uh, Jacob's experience at Bethel this week and next week. So just quickly, look with me at Genesis 27. Let's get the context here. Genesis 27, verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Haram to my brother Laban, and stay with him for a few days until your, your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Don't you love that? It was all her idea until he forgets what you did to him. Beautiful. We're so good at passing the buck, we human beings, aren't we? All right. Anyway. Then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? All right, so this is the backdrop of Jacob leaving home and, and going to his mother's family's uh, 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 place of residence for a time uh, in order to escape the wrath and the vengeance of his brother Esau. Let me just point out a couple of things from the text that we just read. The first one is that... that Jacob is being threatened by Esau. He's being threatened for his life because of Esau's pain. And I just want to I just want to point this out real quickly. Esau's pain uh, had had two results, and we see both of them in the text. Um, what Jacob did to his brother Esau was really hurtful. To, to take his birthright, to barter for his birthright, take away his birthright from him, and then to outright steal his blessing was a, was a source of, of, of hurt to his brother Esau. Well, what happens? Can I just ask you an honest question? How many of you have discovered that when you're hurt, you express it in anger? Not everybody does, by the way. 
But how many of you, when you're hurt, get angry? Go ahead, confess, and raise your hands. We often, we often express ourselves in ways, the other person looks at us and says, man, you're angry. When if we took a second and stepped back and thought about it before expressing ourselves, we would say, I'm really not angry. What I am is hurt. Anger's on the surface, hurt's underneath it, pain's underneath it, right? My real problem is I'm hurt. And, and because I'm hurt, I'm mad, right? And, and that's kind of the way it goes often for us. Now, not everybody expresses pain with anger. Some people, when they're hurt, just start crying. And that's usually better, actually, I'd say, than anger, okay? It's usually better than anger. But, um, uh, but some of us find ourselves, when we're hurt, expressing it in anger. And that's what, that's what Esau does. Esau expresses himself angrily. In, in, uh, in uh, chapter seven, uh, 27, verse 34, we see this. We see, we see Esau's great anger against his brother. But the second thing that we see is this problem of resentment. This problem of resentment. Esau gets bitter with his brother. He gets resentful with his brother. And, and I think this is, this is fairly, fairly common, this is, but this is the way it goes. He experiences pain. He gets angry. And then he gets some time to think about it. And with time to think about it comes a plan. <laughs> a plan for how I'm going to get back at him. And this is what... Can I ask you a question? How many of you have ever found yourselves later on in your anger and hurt saying to yourself, if only I could have thought to say this in the moment. That's a version of this, right? It's natural, but that doesn't make it right. It's natural, but it's not necessarily right, right? It's easy to hatch plans later on. And this kind of goes full bore with Esau. Like, he's looking at the whole thing considering his father's age. And I'll wait till my dad's gone so that my dad doesn't have to see it. Whether that's because he doesn't want to hurt his dad or whether that's because he doesn't want his dad to know about it. Either way, I don't want my dad to be alive. I'll wait till my dad's dead. My father's going to die soon. And when he does, I'll get him. I'll get him. I'll take him out right? This issue of resentment. Esau was wronged, and it hurt, and that's understandable. But his reaction was sinful. And bitterness, we're told in Hebrews 12, 15, ruins a lot of people's lives. The, the thing about bitterness is it never ruins only the life of the bitter person. It always spreads. And listen to this. There are families all over America right now that are either not going to have Thanksgiving together or they're going to have an awkward Thanksgiving together because they don't know what to do with old hurts. They've never been resolved. They've never been fixed. They've never been dealt with. They're simmering below the surface. And there are people that are going to share Thanksgiving and the most thankfulness they're ever go- the most thankful they're going to be is when it's done. And they get in the car to go home. And they say, "I'm glad that obligation's over for another year. 
pretty sad. It's pretty sad, right? The, the awful fruit of, of bitterness and resentment. Beware how sneaky and how deceptive unforgiveness can be. It kills, it kills. That's what's the, the, the moral of the story here. Esau's resentment is, I'm going to kill my brother. And here's what you need to know. That, that bitterness and resentment will kill even without murder. It'll kill relationships. It'll kill your peace. It'll kill your joy. It kills all kinds of stuff. The root of bitterness is incredibly destructive. It's incredibly destructive. And it's always spreading. It always spreads. So that's the first thing we see here. The second thing is, I'm always, I, 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 for, it's one of those things that I've just thought, you know, it's not a major thing. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But often over the years, I've read this text and I've just kind of went, huh, I wonder what that's all about. And I don't know that I have any deep insight here, but I'm just going to say this really quickly. It's fascinating to me. You're reading the text. You come to Genesis 27, verse 41, and then verse 44. And in verse 41, what Esau says is, the days of mourning for my father are near. Meaning what? Meaning my dad's going to die soon. Isaac lived 40 years. (laughs) He lived for 40 years. That's a long wait. I mean, that's not anywhere near. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. Then, then Rebekah says to Jacob, go to my brother Laban's house and stay there for a few days. 20 years later, 20 years later, he comes home. There's nothing about the story that is soon or short. And yet, and yet Esau is saying, the days of my father's mourning are near, and, Re- and, and, and Rebecca is saying, You're, uh, go, go take this trip for a few days until your brother's anger simmers down. Can I just say this as observations? I'm not sure that this is what is intended by the text, but can I just say this? I think part of, these, part of what we could take away from these statements about these brief periods of time would be this. Number one, we seriously underestimate the consequences of sin. Oh, you'll only be gone for a few days. 20 years later, here we are. 20 years later, right? Remember that old phrase? Sin will always take you farther than you intended to go, make you stay longer than you intended to stay, and make you pay a price you never intended to pay. Don't ever underestimate the consequences of sin. Sin has serious consequences. Everyone in the story is thinking, ah, this is going to get resolved real quickly. And nothing gets resolved quickly. Nothing gets dealt with quickly in this story. I think one one appropriate conclusion is that we underestimate the consequences of sin. The second one is this. Time doesn't heal all wounds. You ever heard that phrase? Time heals all wounds? That's baloney. Time can be helpful to heal some wounds, but some wounds fester the long that they're left. Sometimes time makes things worse. Sometimes the longer you wait to deal with something, the harder it is to deal with and the more unlikely it becomes that you'll actually deal with it. Time isn't necessarily on our side. 
There's a whole lot of time that is lost and there's a whole lot of damages done when we don't handle things when we should handle them. I found this interesting. One of the things that you read in going through, there's these kind of statements in the law. One of them is this. If, and, and we're not going to get into the whole gender thing, and we're not going to talk about the whole marriage relationship thing and all that. Just make this observation with me real quickly. One of the things the law provided for was this. If a, if a young woman's father or if a married, uh, a married woman's husband heard about his daughter or his wife's vow, he could cancel it, but only on that day. The day he heard about it, he could declare it null and void. If he slept on it, her vow stood. Like there's some things that you have to deal with in the moment. You deal with it in the moment or you don't get a chance to deal with it at all. My point here is simply to say this. Don't think that there are things you can put off endlessly and it'll it'll be okay. Time isn't always on our side. It's not always on our side. There are things that should be handled in a timely manner. And I think that's part of the lesson here. Well, we'll wait a few days, and it turns out to be 20 to 40 years later that this family issue is actually getting dealt with. All right? The third thing to make note of here is this. And probably shouldn't take any time on this at all. I'm just going to mention it. Esau's wives... The, the first thing about this that, that probably doesn't need any attention, but I'll just say it, is like if you're here today and you're single, you're not married, and you're thinking about getting married, marry a believer. Okay, just marry a believer. Like life is really hard when you don't share your core values. Let's, let's say, even aside from whether there's a biblical command or not, it's just, if, if your faith means anything to you, and you know you don't share your faith with your prospective partner, maybe you want to rethink that. Might not be a great idea, okay? If you get married, and you're already married, and your spouse is an unbeliever, please hear this. This is not a statement of condemnation for you. We're going to believe God to win your spouse through you. Amen? We're going to believe God for that. But if you can avoid it, don't get yourself into it right now. <laughs> right? That can be a difficult way to go. So that's number one. But the second thing about, the, about Esau's wives is this, and this is just kind of a foretaste of things to come, but let me just mention it briefly now. In very, mysteriously, in very mysterious ways, God's providence is at work on behalf of his people, even in the midst of all of our imperfection. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this, that the story of Jacob's life and the way the nation of Israel comes about is full of messes that these people created, and yet God accomplished his will through it anyways. It was Jacob being ungracious and taking his brother's birthright. It was Jacob being an outright liar and stealing his brother's blessing. It was Esau marrying heathen women that were driving his parents crazy. And it all added up to 
Jacob, go find a wife somewhere else. Mind you, the mess didn't stop when he got there. It just keeps going, right? He marries sisters. Horrible idea. Just a horrible idea. While he's being deceived by his father-in-law. Not great for family relationships or Thanksgiving, right? Not great. And through all of it, God brings the nation of Israel into existence. You know why? Because God's providence is such that he fulfills his promises to his people and he causes all things to work together for good. He's not responsible for the messes that we make, but he is on the hook of accomplishing his will despite those things. Here's what I want to just say to you today. I don't care how big of a mess you've made with your life. You have not come to a place that is beyond the reach of God's providence in your life. He brings you back. He redeems what is broken. He will find purposes for the mess. He will make a testimony that's not there, wouldn't be there otherwise. And you might always look back on your life and say, I wish I'd done it a different way and there would have been an easier way to go. But I promise you this, God doesn't ball you up into a little package of a little wad of paper and throw you in the trash can. He's on the hook to work together for your good and his own glory. Why, is, why do I say he's on the hook? Because he has promised that that's what he does for his people. That's what he's promised. And so I want you to know today that it doesn't matter where you're at or where you've been, there's a God who offers hope for you today. There's a God who offers grace to you today, who offers the promise of healing and of redemption for you today, and who will take all those things that the enemy has meant for evil in your life, all the things that are wrong about your life and even the sins, and he's going to weave it together in a way that's going to make you uniquely qualified to serve him in places that I can't get to. Because that's his work in your life. That's your testimony, not mine. This is the, this is the beauty of our God, that he's providentially at work in his people, doing it despite and even through our incredible failures, sins, and messes. So please hear this. The next time Satan whispers condemnation, guilt, shame, despair, please hear this. Repent of the things you need to repent of and then get up and move on. Because your God's not holding it against you, nor has he discarded you. He has a plan for you. He's going to bring it to pass and he'll use it all. Amen? He'll use it all. So have hope, have courage today, okay? All right, a little good news. It's Thanksgiving week, gotta love it. All right, reasons to be thankful. Listen, all right, let me just read a text. And, and so now we're at the real text and everyone goes, oh dear God, this is gonna be trouble, all right? Hang in there, it won't be too much trouble. Let me read Genesis 10, uh, 28, 10 through 16. With that background, let me read this passage. So we understand now while Jake, why Jacob is leaving. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. 
and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in, in, in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Hey, this is not in my notes, but can I just say this to you really quickly? I don't know why, but I I was having a hard time reading the passage because I couldn't get this thought out of my head. Can I just say as a word of encouragement to you today that what we're looking at here is the mess that Jacob made with his life and God's providence? But can I assure you today that if, if, if you're in the generation of Isaac and Rebekah and you have a Jacob and Esau in your life, can I just tell you that you can pray with faith for your children and believe God that they have never committed a sin that makes them beyond God's reach? Can I offer hope to parents today? Please hear this. The last word has not yet been spoken. The last word has not yet been spoken. And I want you to know this. All parents make mistakes, and not everything our kids do is on us. Amen? We might contribute, but not all of it's on us. And I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that God is providentially at work in their lives, and the God that has worked in your life can work in theirs too. So don't get too, don't get too, carry a burden and pray, but don't get too discouraged. The end of the story is not yet written. Amen? God and his providence works even through our sins and our failures. All right. So we've read this passage. Jacob is sent away, and so begins, uh, for those of you that have been around here all year, so begins Jacob's true north journey with God. He starts to figure some things out at this point in his life. There's aspects of this text that we're not going to cover until later in Jacob's story. And I got to tell you, there's some things I can't wait to get to because of how significant they are. But for now, uh, for now, I just want to share two general thoughts with you from this text. Just two. The first one is what I'll call Jacob's realization. Jacob's realization. What he comes to realize. And we see this in verse 16. Jacob awakes from his sleep. He awakes from his sleep the dream that he had, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob's realization. Now, what's this realization about? Let me, let me, uh, let me, let me mention, let me mention uh, just a couple of things about Jacob's realization. The first one has two parts to it. These two important realities, two important realities. Um, Verse 16 is the difference between, uh, between something that A.W. Tozer referred to. I found A.W. Tozer's uh, writing on this subject particularly helpful. And I want to share it with you this morning. And I want to share it with you, hopefully, 
to either create or to rekindle in your heart a hunger for something, okay? A hunger for something. What he described was the difference between these two realities. The reality of God's omnipresence, which is what? The fact that God is always present everywhere. No matter where, no matter when you are, God is there. But please hear this. That fact is not the same thing as this. God's manifest presence. And that is when you become aware that God is present. When you sense God's presence. When you have the privilege of knowing that God is here. Please hear this. Yes, what I'm talking about right now is experiential. And yes, in a sense, I'm saying it's an experience you should have. And if you don't, you need to get on your knees and you need to ask God for it. Please hear this. Because he's not just a present God that he wants you to know about up here. Okay, he's present. I know he's here. Please hear this. He wants to be intimate with you. He wants to be close to you. He wants to make himself known to you. He has given to us his Holy Spirit to reveal himself to us. It's God's manifest presence. It's the fact that I know and can sense God's presence. Yes, it's experiential. Please hear this. And I'm going to take one second to say this. I'm going to refer to this again next week, and I'll do it in a little more depth. But please hear this. We, have, we are in danger of... In wanting to be so biblically accurate, which is a good thing, by the way, we are in danger of turning the Christian faith into an academic exercise. And Christianity is not just academics. It's not just something that happens in your head. It's God wants you to know by personal experience what it is to have the living presence of of God in your life. Now, I want to say openly, it's not always the same. Amen? And I'm going to tell you something else. I absolutely believe on the authority of God's Word that there are times when He will make you walk through the valley of the shadow of death with no sense of His nearness anywhere because there's things He teaches us there that we don't learn anywhere else. But please hear this. To live your whole Christian life never experiencing the manifest presence of God is an awful thing. It's an awful thing. In one sense, it's just living beneath your birthright. Like, why would you put up with that? Secondly, it's not biblical. My brothers and sisters, God wants to reveal Himself to us. Christianity while it is, we have gotten so used to thinking in terms of hermeneutics and science and textual criticism that we've turned Christianity into something that is in danger of becoming lifeless. And so I'm just going to call us back. I'm not downplaying any of those things, they're all important, they all have their place. But please hear this. Sometimes you've got to have the breath of God breathe on you again. 
My brothers and sisters, the breath of God, the life of God's Spirit. You wake up one morning and you say, surely God is in this place. Somehow I misplaced him for a long time. Where has he been? Oh, he's been there. That was his omnipresence. But you got to let your heart be touched again by his manifest presence. And if, if that is a long time in the past for you, or if that's a never for you, then let these words create a holy dissatisfaction and a deep hunger that cause you to start saying, where can I find God's presence? Because I'm going to tell you this, I believe he wants that for you. He wants to show himself to you. So get hungry for it. Get hungry for it. My prayer is that when you sit down to Thanksgiving this week and you look at the food that you're so hungry for, that this point comes back to you and you say, dear God, make me hungry for your presence. Listen, for the bread that comes down from heaven for the meat that is really meat indeed, that you hunger for the presence of the living Christ in your life. You experience his presence along the way. Secondly, and I'm going to do this. I thought long and hard about this. I'm going to do it. Some of you are going to recognize it, and you're going to shake your head at me, and I get it. And some of you aren't going to recognize it, and probably good. But for those of you that do, I want you to know it's not something I enjoyed. It wasn't part of my my my. not my taste, not my style, not anything about it. It's just, it's there from my youth because it was everywhere for a time, okay? And, And it's useful for making a point this morning. We are living in a material world. And there are lots of material girls around. Okay? So, listen. Look at the text. In the text, there's angels, there's a supernatural dream, and then there's a God who speaks from the top of a visionary ladder. And I just want you to know that this material world that screams at you and tells you how real it is, is not as real as the spiritual world that we can't see with our eyes. The message of that song is trying to get everybody to stay stuck in the fact that we live in a material world. And please hear this. We absolutely do. And we've got to deal with it. But please hear this. It cannot blind us to the fact that we live in a spiritual world also. That's what happens. He lays his head down on a very real material rock that had to be extraordinarily uncomfortable to sleep on. And in the midst of his material world, God appears to him in a dream. My brothers and sisters, I say it for the purpose of emphasis. Here's the fact. You and I are living in interaction with an ever-increasingly all-absorbing physical and technological world that is designed to deaden us to the spiritual realities of the world around us. It makes it easy to forget the spiritual realities. Makes it easy. And you and I have to avoid and fight against that like the plague. The world can laugh all at once. 
But angels are real and so are demons. God is real and so is Satan. We live in a world that is a physical manifestation of a current battle between good and evil. And the cross of Jesus Christ stands at the center of it all, offering salvation to those whose eyes and whose mind can be opened by the gospel. And some of us, some of us are in some spiritual battles of our own. And we've got to wake up to that reality. We also need to remember this. Because of the nature of it, the spiritual world is something that the, the natural world, the physical world, is something that you will experience and be exercised in every single day of your life. You're going to get into a car. You're going to deal with people. You're going to handle money. You're going to, you're going to, all the physical stuff, the material stuff of this world will be real in your experience every day. If you're going to stay in touch with the spiritual, you're going to have to go out of your way. You're going to have to look. Oh, it'll be there. It'll be unknown to you. I'm saying that if you want to know God and you want to experience the wonders of the spiritual life, you're going to have to discipline yourself to look. You're going to have to engage in that world a little bit. You're going to have to be aware. Listen, you're going to have to spend some time in the Word. You're going to have to pray. You're going to have to do the things that connect you with a realm beyond this one. Because this realm will deaden your senses like crazy. Like crazy. Most of us don't interact with the spirit realm, not because it's not real or because it's not there, but because we're not tuned to the right station. You've got to tune your heart to the station. It's there. So, so my urge to you today is to be deliberate about developing your spiritual senses, about being aware of a world that is beyond the spirit realm, doing some thinking about and some spending time with God over the fact that the world is real, that world is real, and that it means something to you and for you. So, that's point number one. We're living in a material world. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be ignored. I'm not encouraging you to try. I'm not encouraging you to try to escape it. Please don't. God's intention is for you to stay part of it. But you're going to have to be very deliberate about taking care of the spiritual side of you. That won't happen by itself. That won't happen by itself. All right. That's number one. Number two. Let me close with a quick look at Jacob's covenant. It's verses 13 through 15 in our text. And, and I'll just close with, with, uh, with three quick points about this covenant. The first one is that we understand this covenant in two ways. The first way is it was a literal promise to a physical people and a physical piece of land. It was a man, Jacob, had a literal promise that he would have descendants, children, and that their descendants, a physical people that came to be known as the nation of Israel, would be given a physical piece of land that's still sitting there in the Middle East today and still being fought over, okay? 
It's that, it's a real thing, and it's, this was a literal promise and a real thing, okay? So you read the text, you take it literally, and that's the literal, that's the literal understanding of it. However, it's also very clear that this intended was intended to, to be viewed spiritually, that there is a spiritual promise and a spiritual people because there is a spiritual deliverance that involves a future inheritance. In other words, it was all a messianic promise. That's the way that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They would be blessed because through Jacob and his descendants would, be, would come the Savior, Christ the Lord. That would be the blessing that would pass on to all people. It was a messianic promise. And it's a messianic promise that was fulfilled by the death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, and ultimately the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all one big thing. But please hear it. What God intended was to not just build a nation, one nation from a physical line of people, but to throw the door open wide and save to himself a people from every nation and every tribe and every kindred and every tongue, to bring them to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, by Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, and then offer to this people the promise of his return when they will be united with him as his people forever. That's ultimately what the promise is about. And, and so we understand the covenant in these two ways. And you're a covenant heir. You're a believer in Jesus Christ today. That's your covenant. That's your promise. Through the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you became a son or daughter of God. And he's got a future for you in his heaven. He's going to come back for us. He's going to come back for us. That's the, that's the literal and spiritual understanding of the covenant. Now, knowing that about the covenant, there's this. Two important promises that are given in this covenant. Two important promises. The first one is, God says to Jacob, I am with thee. I am with thee. Now, here's what's interesting about it. That phrase, I am with thee, was said first to Isaac. There's the reference. You can look it up. It was said to his father Isaac... Then it was said to Jacob, and then Jesus repeated it to his disciples. Lo, I am with thee always. Matthew 28. He made that promise to his disciples. The second promise is, I will not leave thee. I will not leave thee. This one's a little bit more extensive, and it's interesting to hear who this is said to. It was repeated to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31. A word given to the whole nation, I will never leave thee. It was spoken specifically to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 5. I will be with thee and I will never leave thee, right? He was going to be a man of war. He needed some encouragement, right? I will never leave thee. It was spoken to Solomon. It was spoken to the poor and needy. In Isaiah 41, that they had a God who would never leave them. And then it was spoken to all believers in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. I will never leave thee. I will never leave thee. What does this mean? I want to go back to this again. And I want, I want to repeat this. Now, I want, to, I want you to know that what I'm about to say 
can be unsettling for some, and it's hard. I don't know what to say. I, I know some things to say about it. I don't know how to help you through it. Okay? I don't know how to help you through it. But it's, it's true. And you can either look at it through the eyes of bitterness and see a reason to get mad at God, or you can look at it as a word of comfort for you today. That's, that's what's before you is your decision. Here's the fact. These promises mean that no matter what, no matter what your conditions are, in our text, in our story, Jacob is in a dark place by himself because of his brother's sins, his mother's sins, and his own sins. It's a whole mess that has been made. And there he is in the middle of his mess with a God that is saying to him, I'm with you, and I will never leave you. And I just want to tell you this. It's exceedingly painful to acknowledge that two things are simultaneously true. People act sinfully, and God is present with people in the moment. You know, the natural question is, well, if he's so present, why doesn't he just deliver me? Because this really hurts. You know, the ancient writers, we don't hear a lot about this anymore. But the old writers used to reference the phrase, the dark night of the soul. And the reality is that in everybody's life, everybody's life, there come those moments that are dark nights of your soul where your pillow's a stone and your family's gone and someone wants to kill you and everything about your future is unclear and uncertain and you're by yourself and it all really stinks. And please hear this. In the middle, smack dab in the middle of the dark night of your soul, there is God who is with you and who has not left you. And I cannot always explain to you why it is that he does not relieve you of those circumstances in the moment. All I can tell you is he's there. You're not there by yourself. Oh, I can add this little bit. I just want you to know this. I want you to know that the one who is there with you, if this helps to make sense of any of it, the one who is there with you is the one who is not ashamed to hang on a cross for you and go through his own dark night of the soul that his father did not spare him from. 
Please hear this. There's just something about living in a world where human beings have the freedom to do their own thing, where sin makes everybody hurt. Sometimes because of things you've done and sometimes because of things that you had no blame for but were done to you. I'm sorry. It hurts. But if you want to find comfort, I want you to know God is with you and he has never left you. And I do know this. I know that if you will let his presence speak to you and if you will partner with him in this covenant that he has made with you, your story will be much like Jacob's. It'll be lots of falling along the way and lots of struggling and lots of hurt and lots of failure. But there will also be a story of blessing that he will bring through it. He will use you to touch other people. I want you to know that he is in it. He has not left you alone there. And he will bring about his purposes through it, my brothers and sisters. We're a covenant people. We're a covenant people. And because we're a covenant people, he has promised that he's with us and he will never leave us. And he will never leave us. You're going to have to sort through the experience of your life and figure out how you're going to understand that. But I want you to know this. If you do it with a heart of faith and a heart of worship, what you'll find out is that with lots of things you can identify as being sins against God that were not part of his will for your life, God didn't waste it. He wove it into something that he's going to use for your good and for his glory. And that's where worshipers get on their knees and with tears in their eyes submit themselves to the God of heaven and say, God, take this mess. Make something out of it. The last thing I'll say about this is this. The world just has a mess. We have a mess that God does something with. If, so the mess is going to be the mess. Get used to the idea. It's a sin-filled world. But your God will work it together. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He didn't fall asleep when you were sinning. He didn't fall asleep when you were being sinned against. He didn't leave you. He didn't forsake you. He's going to make sense of it all because that's who he is. It's a hard thing to talk about. The last thing about Jacob's covenant is this. It's such good news that he's there even in the messes of our own making. And I just want to say this really quickly because of how much of a point I've already made about it. It's not a good excuse for making another mess. Like, don't think that mess making is the best way for God to work in your life. 
Some of us need to get used to the idea that God can do things in our lives in some easier ways, at least sometimes. Okay? So don't just be a mess maker unnecessarily. But man, I just, I just want to encourage us again with this truth that there is a God of grace who doesn't discard us in the midst of our messes. And while he may chasten us, he will also, please hear this, visit us in our affliction. He will visit us in our affliction. And he will even transform our sins. This is a radical thing. But when God is active and present in your life, Satan and sin do not get the last word. Your sins are not just facts that sit there against you for the rest of time and eternity. They are something that God acknowledges, pays the price for, offers you forgiveness in, and then says, let me weave it into your life testimony and bring glory to myself through it and use this to touch other people's lives through you. He literally wastes nothing. So have hope. Have hope. Your sins don't end with the words guilt and shame. They end with testimony. They end with testimony. They end with redemption. If we'll submit our lives to him and learn what it means to be a covenant people. This story is such a story of God's grace in the midst of human mess. It's what it is. It's a God who establishes covenant with ridiculous people. So thank God for it, because we're ridiculous people. Amen? And God's grace is present for us. So give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks, because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the poor say I'm rich, because of what the Lord has done for us. Be a people of thanksgiving this week. Because we got a lot of reason to give thanks, don't we? All right. Would you bow and let's close in prayer this morning? It's pretty good. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. We're going to do that. Let's take a moment to respond in this way. The low-hanging fruit, the easy thing to say is this. Would you just take a moment to purpose in your hearts, this is going to be a Thanksgiving-filled week, not just because of the date on the calendar. Like, you're going to turn your eyes to heaven, remember your God, and you're going to give him thanks for what he's done in your life. The second part is this. And I know I'm treading on holy ground here. But if you dare to take a look at your worst sin. And if you dare to take a look at the worst sin that was ever committed against you, I want to remind you that this is a week 
that as a covenant person, God would want to overwrite the words guilt and shame with the covenant that he established with you through the Lord Jesus Christ and tell you that your sins have been forgiven, that your guilt has been paid for, and that your shame is being overwritten by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life that is producing a testimony to his glory and that's going to make you useful in his world. You're not trapped by your past. You're not stuck there. You're a covenant man and a covenant woman. So step into that today. Yeah, it's not easy. It might take some work. It might take some paying attention. It might mean going through a difficult process for a while. I'm sorry if I'm picking open a scab on Thanksgiving week. But please hear this. Some scabs need to be picked open if they're going to be healed. So recognize the beauty of what God has done for you this week. In all the mess, He's your covenant God. He's with you and He will not leave you. So Lord, I just pray for your people today. Where those sins have marked us with guilt and shame. And where those sins against us have marked us with deep wounds and pain, I just ask that the covenant of grace would sweep through our lives right now. And that the truth of a God who saves and then who heals would be so very real that instead of looking back and living anchored to the past, we would be able to look forward and say, Here's the story that is being written and here's what God is doing in my life. He's going to heal me to His glory and He's going to use my life for His own purposes. All of it, wasting nothing. It'll be part of what He does that is going to end up being a testament to His grace. It's going to make me useful in the touching of other people's lives around me. So Lord, touch and heal walk with your people today. Lord, let this be a week of true thanksgiving, a week in which the awesomeness of the new covenant is revealed to us, a week in which the manifest presence of God is made known to us once again. Lord, wake us up out of our slumber. Lord, let us not be lost in a material world. Lord, waken us up to the realities of who you are, to your desire to be present in our lives. Make yourself known to us anew today. Thank you for being our God. We worship you. We bless you. We thank you that we have the privilege of being a covenant people. In Jesus' name, amen.